Hello, and welcome to the Performance Cycling Podcast. I'm Jason Hammond. I'm here with Todd Norwood. Hello, welcome back. Today, we're going to jump in a little bit and talk about testing, particularly performance testing, and how that may help your training. I'm just going to go through a handful of tests today, how they perform, sort of what what you can take from that data, how you can apply it to your training, and then we'll we'll share maybe some of our experiences and uh, opinions on the matter. Sure. And of course, it's the maybe a month into base for a lot of you. So now would be a decent time to get maybe your preliminary uh, power test done so you can get an idea of your starting point. You've shaken out the cobwebs from your off season. And this is a good base point to build from if you get good data in order to see where you are progressing in March, April, May. Yeah. Yep. That's exactly it. I think there's certain value to uh, test, retest, repeat cycle so you can monitor your progress over time and have the same thing to come back to uh, to make sure that your training is having the desired effect yeah i guess uh if we want to be overly mathematical you know you need at least two data points to get a change for sure so and if you have five six seven data points then um, suddenly the changes can have even more meaning but you also don't want to do a 20 minute power test every weekend yeah because uh, sounds awful uh, among other things, yeah, motivation certainly will influence your your results in some of these tests. Sure. Uh, so I'm going to start actually with the the one that's sort of the gold standard for many years, right, which is the VO2 max test. That's the one we, we talk about all the time. Uh, a little history, sort of the, the mechanism and the, the philosophy behind this was proposed way back in 1920 um, by someone called A.V. Hill. And so that was the initial time where this was proposed like okay well under trying to understand the limits of human performance and this is actually more in a time where we are thinking of from the like man is a machine standpoint so the the origins of the vo2 max are, are very much in this man is a machine sort of philosophy uh, which was the you know prevailing thought at the time like oh well i just need to figure out like what are the you know like limiters of human performance just like what are the limiters of my car going fast and if I can address those, then I can figure out how to make somebody run faster, jump higher, so on and so forth. And uh, do you mind me asking what the you know opposition, what our current idea is? Is there a name for it? What's what are the prevailing theories? Well, I mean, I guess you sort of have the uh, the Noakes view of the world, right? The sort of the central governor theory, but it's more that it's not just the the purely mechanical, if you will, like okay, well, blood in, blood out, but there's there's more to it. There's certainly a psychological component to the factors that influence. And yeah, I think the, the central governor theory is, is fairly valid when it comes to like the brain is your limiter of performance as much as it is the other things in the physiology. Sure. And as you do more of these power tests, you'll figure out what for you is that limiter. So for me, it's a lot, uh, a lot like biomechanical stuff is um, being able to maintain the form and maintain the position, things mm-hmm. like that. And other people will say, I just don't have enough air. Some people will say my brain's screaming at me to stop. So I guess it's just we're, we're progressing towards realizing that there are different limiters for different people. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I think one of the common misconceptions with VO2 max is that it's about oxygen, which, which it is about oxygen, um, but it's w- what oxygen you're measuring, and it's actually the oxygen utilization that you're measuring. And so to, to calculate VO2 max, the formula is you're actually looking at your maximum cardiac output, so a volume, a fluid volume, and then that's multiplied by the difference between the oxygen in your arteries compared to the oxygen that's in your veins 
So that delta is the oxygen that was utilized by the cells. So it's really, it's really a metabolic component. It's not just about breathing like, oh, well, how much oxygen can you take in and expel in a minute? No, it's really about how much oxygen can you breathe in and then have your cell transport to your cells and then have your cells utilize to produce energy uh, within a minute. And then it's, you know, it's a volume measured in uh, milliliters per kilogram per minute. Sure. So I, I guess I always thought that VO2 max was just oxygen in and then carbon dioxide out and they just took the difference between those two is that how they do it It, when you measure it effectively yes right you're looking at how much how much oxygen in and then you're you're backing out to this level of like well if you know if that oxygen was replaced by carbon dioxide then it must have been used in the cells to create motion in our sure. case like if it's a closed loop the uh, the oxygen in and the oxygen out if you subtract those the rest of the oxygen has to go into your cells right it has to be, have been used exactly and in, in the case of a traditional vo2 max test right you're you're outfitted with an apparatus over your nose and you know usually your nose is pinched close shut and then you're up you're breathing through an apparatus that's capturing and doing um, an analysis of the gases so you know the oxygen in and the uh, co2 out and then and the rest is usually nitrogen, which is inert. So you sort of ignore that. I've, so I've never done a traditional VO2 max test. Uh, I always, they just said, ride your bike for five minutes and we'll back propagate your power and your weight to uh, some, some chart that uh, compares the traditional test to this bike specific test. And then they give you a number, uh, uh, their best estimation of yes. the power you were able to produce. So you can certainly get those. And in a, in a traditional VO2 max, the, like the standard is the treadmill based one, um, which like called the Bruce protocols, one of the standard ones. And the goal is that this test is really only 12 to 15 minutes long. It shouldn't be terribly longer than 15 minutes. Otherwise they didn't start you going hard enough. Um, and you know, I think on the bike, typically you have some starting, uh, wattage and then you, you increase by 20 or so Watts per minute and you can pretty readily get to a point where you're, you're fatigued. So let's talk about what the protocol actually entails. And then I have, um, a question about running versus cycling. Okay. I'm, I'm glad you're going to ask that question because I think I have an answer. Okay. So, you know, usually you're going to start at some, some wattage, um, and, Again, like the, the initial part doesn't matter. If you're just warming up, it could be 100 watts and it can be pretty small. And then you're going to increase by a fixed increment every minute. So, you know, plus 20, plus 20, plus 20, or aggressive ones will be like plus 40. So you, you get done faster. But if you're not really working, then it's not a big deal. It's like you just don't want to have this really prolonged, like, oh, I increased by five watts. I got around, you know, near my threshold and I increased five watts per minute and I was, uh, you know, going for a really long time. Is that because your limiter would then be lactate accumulation? That's the thought. You really want to get in a true VO2 max test. One of the criterion is that you had a true maximal effort, right? Like it wasn't psychologically limited. You, you really were physiologically limited and you got there. And usually what you'll see is actually you'll go up to a peak and then it'll sort of taper off like you sort of hit that point your oxygen your, yep the oxygen consumption so so and it's normally linear if i'm correct so fairly linear um, yeah. from the starting point to each step you'll see if they take a data point one data point for each step you'll see this linear progression of the amount of oxygen you use 
And then when you hit a certain point, it flattens off. Yep. And they usually make you go past the flat part to make sure. Make that, sure it's not actually still increasing yeah, a little bit. Yeah, it's not just some variation in the data. Yep. And then uh, when they see the flat point, that it usually doesn't climb again. And that yep. number is your number. Yep. I, so having done it, now I didn't do a traditional one. There's a, there's a long story behind this. I might as well share it since I, are, since I sort of spilled the beans on it. Um, in PT school, we had an exercise phys course, and the professor is like, well, anybody who can hit a VO2 max of 70, I'll give them 100 bucks." And I was like, well, hey, I don't run, but I bike. Do you have a bike in the lab? Can I ride a bike in the lab? He's like, yeah, he hems and haws. And he's like, oh, okay. All right, fine. If you want to do it on the bike, I'll... He, like, looked at your stature. Hmm, can I, like, quick Like, how, how, do I, how do I feel about this guy? And so okay, fine, you can do it on the bike. So, like, I bring my pedals to the lab and set it all up. Get on it. And he's like, all right, well, so here's, here's the thing. Um, I don't have any way to set this bike to do an automated protocol. Uh, you know, like, 20 watts per minute. Like, okay, so what, what, are, you, what are we going to do? He's like... Well, it can do a thing where it goes up one watt per second indefinitely. Ooh, 60 watt ramp. Yeah. So that was miserable. And um, it lasted like five minutes, though, didn't it? Or six minutes? Well, I got, it didn't last terribly long, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> right. Because there's just at that increase, you can't, uh, you can't, you just can't sustain it. But no, let's, let's see. I actually got a pretty high value out of it. So I think I got. It, there's not a, there was no accumulating fatigue just because I was it was increasing so fast. I don't actually remember the watts, but th- so you told me this story previously, and I'm gonna say that you were like one or two points off. Yeah, I got 69. Mark. Yeah, uh, and I and I contend I probably would have been able to get 70 if it had been a little bit more a, proper, a flatter uh, a flatter curve. Who knows? Back in the day, yeah, back know. in the day when I was you know <laughs> fitter and and younger. So my peak from last year was also 68. So. Um, if, if we're dropping numbers, we have to, uh, you know, you got to, got to compare flex our numbers. So, um, but that mine was just from a, uh, it was, I think a, a, it was the, yeah, it was a four minute test actually. Okay. So, um, still well, equally awful. Um, but it was yeah. the main reason for that was because I had lost a bunch of weight and that mm-hmm. really jumps up your, um, yep, the, the metrics, the, the kilogram part goes down. Yeah. Uh, so interesting though, that you mentioned that because I have seen some more recent research that indicates if you actually do sort of a reverse protocol where you have somebody go really, really hard up front and then get into this more progressive, um, so you, you like go really hard and then you drop down a little bit and then kind of ramp back up that you actually get a little bit higher value. Hmm. Like something about going really hard up front, maybe there's lack of fatigue. I don't quite know the explanation. But I, there has been some research. And then the interest, the really interesting thing that I would say starts to get more at the central governor and the psychology of sport is if you then go back and have them do the traditional step test, they don't stop at their prior lower level. They actually attain the higher level they got on the reverse test. Is this in, in the same day? Uh, not in the same day, but you okay. can like come back another day or so. Whoa. Okay. Because I was going to say the... Um... We talked about this before. If you lift right before a, a, a hard effort, it can increase your ability to utilize your mm-hmm. quads and glutes. And maybe this really intense effort at the beginning could be uh, priming your brain to do an intense effort later. And we know that when you start warming up, you ha- get all these hormone releases. You get a lot of physiological changes that uh, predispose your body to going harder. So mm-hmm. my initial reaction would be this initial bout of effort 
kind of clears the cobwebs out and primes you for the second bout. Yep. Uh, but it's interesting that you then break through on your future test that's not even on the same day, because if it's on the same day, you could argue that. Sure, you had a warmth effect or something, yeah. something else going on. But for yeah. it to be later on, it's uh, something psychological. Or, well, that would still be psychological. It's like giving your body permission to go that hard. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a big part of the central governor theory is, you know, you need permission to, yep. to you know, to explore hurt that. yourself that yeah. much. Yeah, to yeah. go to that boundary. Um, okay, so... Yeah, there. It's not a fun test to do, and usually you uh, you stop when you get to this peak, or you can no longer progress your pedaling. Right, you can't pedal the resistance. Right, you your, your legs you are just going to stop. The, um, the, the, the minimum. Cr- yeah, yeah. So my question from before was: uh, Do cyclists and runners get different values? Because I know that um, your lactate heart, your lactate threshold heart rate for runners and cyclists are different. Are mm-hmm. um, VO2 max values different for the same individual who does both tests? So there is some research on that, and it shows that it, you tend to see actually lower values in cycling for the same person. Uh, now, I think if you look at a trained cyclist, so I actually did when I did that cycling VO2 max test in school, I actually did a running test too, just for kicks later, like I don't know, a couple weeks later, and my running score was much lower. Like my running value was much lower. Well, your lower. economy was probably right. It was terrible. Worse as well. Yeah, and so. I think also like running upgrade, yeah, all sorts of things. I'm sure um, that so typically what they see though is people are more familiar with running, um, so you'll actually see a little bit higher value, maybe 10, 15 percent higher than you would with cycling because there is a, a skill component to cycling that not everyone has. So there is some specificity involved. But I think if you look at elites, right, you look at elite runners, elite cyclists at the top level of sport, those VO2 max are going to be similar, um, right? And of course, as we know. VO2 max, this is the caveat, right, is not the only predictor of performance. Is it predictive of performance? Yes. Does having a high VO2 max mean you're going to win a lot of races? No. Is a certain VO2 max maybe a price of admission, if you will, to get into a certain level of sport? Yeah, probably. But beyond that, it's certainly not going to say like, oh, well, this guy has a you know, 72 and the other guy is 68. The 72 guy is going to win all the time. That's not the, that's not the answer. Sure. I think that even more important are, um, I, well, I do think it's a um, price of entry in that your VO2 max di- can dictate whether you get dropped or not. Sure. Although in a lot of road races, you're getting dropped, you're doing 250 watts and you're getting dropped because uh, it's just that hard for that long. Um, if you do 250 watts for three hours, then you know, you're know you asking a different question than if you do your VO2 max for four minutes. Mm-hmm. So uh, VO2 max is not everything. And I think the other... Um, oh, I just lost my train of thought. I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> well, so, I mean, the, the thing is, right, as you progress through sport uh, and you move up the different levels, what you typically see is that your, uh, your threshold approaches your VO2 max, right? And that, that delta is smaller. So in an untrained individual, you're, you may hit a, a lactate threshold around, you know, 50 to 60 percent of a VO2 max, whereas in an elite, you know, you're getting closer to uh, 80, 85, 90, sometimes even 95% of VO2 max that you're able to sustain. So I think that's really, when you talk about a VO2 max, that's really actually what matters is what's the relative percentage um, where you're hitting that lactate threshold. And if you're, if it's much higher, right? Like if you see, uh, we're not going to do math, but we're just going to, going to spitball here, but you can imagine a world where you have somebody that's a a 65 VO2 max and they hit their threshold at 90% 90% of that, and you have somebody that's a, a 70 VO2 max, but they hit it at 75% of that. The person with 65 is better off. 
Sure. And like their long-term performance in a larger variety of cases for competition will be, they'll be able to get an advantage or they'll more easily uh, be able to fulfill the demands of that, that part of the race. Yep. Absolutely. And then of course, how many races are won by sprinters? They are known to have like pretty low VO2 maxes and also pretty low thresholds, um, but they're winning the races. So of course, on the backs of uh, other yeah, riders other people who, are, who had a very high VO2 max or sure. threshold. Yeah. So, I mean, you can find value in racing or you can find your, your place in racing, regardless of your values on these tests. Mm-hmm. And it's about having your test values match your ability levels. That's really important. Yep. Absolutely. So I just talk briefly about lactate threshold testing, uh, because the protocol in many ways is similar to a VO2 max test. Uh, less the breathing apparatus over your face, but it's a, it's a, again, it's a step test and you're looking at lactate accumulation, but you're looking at the blood. So there's a little bit of blood, blood draw, um, either finger, I've seen ear prick, um, either way you get to draw some blood and analyze the blood at, at different stages. And again, you see usually a fairly like linear part until it, it breaks until the line breaks. That's no longer linear. The most, uh, how, how often they pull? Um, every 20, 30 seconds, or is it per minute? I want, I want to say it's per minute, but you, I mean, you could do whatever you wanted depending on how, 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 how willing and how annoyed you get. Yeah. I'm sure that also may influence the duration of the test to a certain extent, right? How like how many pricks you're willing to do. Sure. Uh, although, so I wasn't reading an interesting thing about these tests, which is if you looked at trained individuals and so you start exercising very easy, right? And then, you know, you gradually build up over time. If you looked at a trained individual, you actually see a drop in the lactate concentration at first because they're more efficient at removing lactate. And so their lactate concentration actually first drops and then it starts a sort of a linear increase. Whereas an untrained person, it starts at linear increase right away. And so it's just something interesting to think about. Like, oh, well, it goes down first. Again, this is a pretty easy level riding. For most of us, but it it goes down first before it goes up because you're in the trained state. You're actually really efficient at removing it, the lactate that's circulating and processing sure. it. If anything, that indicates the the pattern of usage of our different uh, mechanisms within our body, and so our lactate removal mechanism starts like pretty early. To, uh-huh. to it's it's fairly stuff. robust. Yeah, and it's it's uh, preparing almost for a harder effort in advance. So that's a cool uh, find that the researchers found. So, uh, yeah, so I think that's, that's super interesting. Um, and then, so the, that's the lab version, right. Of having somebody there to take, what are the units for the, um, the lab, the lab values, uh, you're looking at millimoles, millimoles per deciliter. So they do. Okay. Is there a way to convert that to Watts for a cyclist? Well, so everybody varies, right? So, I mean, you could, you could of course look. Would you just at take the watts from the watts the... that you got, right? And okay. You're yeah. Where you where you at the break. point where it um, becomes flat? Yep. Would be the point when you um, are you know that's your threshold. That's a threshold. Okay. Correct. So, but then the interesting thing, right, is that our FTP test, the goal of that is basically to reproduce the lactate test without a lab. Right. So a, a big thing that we're kind of avoiding is the fact that it's kind of annoying to have this mask on for the VO2 max test and go to a lab and pay someone to do it. You have to pay the operator to handle everything. And same with the lactate threshold test. Someone has to prick you. They need 
you know, they need, to, uh, they need expensive to be like a, equipment to analyze it. Yeah. And they need to be like a medical professional if they're yep. dealing with bodily fluids and stuff like that. So we, I mean, we're lazy, we're cheap. We want to figure out a way to approximate those on the bike in the real world. Yeah. I think that's, that's where your FTP test comes in. I think you make a great point is real world versus the lab environment, right? You know, now if you're a pro, then you can actually have some of this equipment, like there's portable VO2 testing units. There's, you know, you could have your doctor prick your ears or going up a climb every, you know, what? Okay. Most of us can't do that. So we just have Could a, you imagine the team doctor leaning out of the car and uh, pricking your ear? I've, I've seen pictures of it. Whoa. Um, so, you know, for the rest of us, we have our power meters and hopefully a, a hill that we can climb or somewhere where we can get uh, some external resistance for a prolonged period of time to go ahead and, and do a, an FTP test. And it's I think that's nice because, one, it's on your bike. Two, it's in the real world. So whatever motivation factors you need there are there, not like looking at some sterile white lab and having somebody prick you. And it's totally repeatable and doable. And so 20 minute, 20, So I've seen two protocols for this, uh, 20 minute and 30 minute. Um, 20 minute is sort of what uh, I go with because it's shorter, takes less than my time. Um, and then with that, you, you take your mean power across the 20 minutes and then a 5% adjustment on that. So you're, you assume that your threshold is 95% of your mean power for the duration of 20 minutes. And then uh, uh, Jill Friel has suggested 30-minute test, and then you, do that, you just take that number um, and, and go with that as your your threshold and then you can set your training zones off of that and away you go sure for for some of you who are in more mountainous regions and you can find a 40 to 50 minute climb that is a proper ftp test is just doing a 40 to 50 minute effort um you should be able to extrapolate that power to 60 minutes if you mm-hmm. want to be really precise about the the wattage and uh if you can do something for 40 minutes you can do it for an hour is basically the you know the general consensus from the sports science community regarding your lactate threshold so uh, i can see why the 30 minute power test you know you're even extrapolating a little further if you can do something for Mm -hmm. 30 minutes you can double that time just based on the fact that how little of a contribution the anaerobic system contributes to a 30 minute effort i think something that's interesting and not discussed that much is the fact that we just assume that you can produce 5% less power for an hour than you can for 20 minutes. Yep. And a big part of this is in an hour effort, there's almost no contribution of the anaerobic system. You do have um, some systematic contribution, but you, um, you, you that's okay because it is what you can do for an hour. Right. Um, but for some people like track riders, you can lean on that. You can anaerobic. smash. Yeah, you can smash a 20 minute effort and then it gets to 30 minutes and you really drop off the power. Mm-hmm. And so some people it's 90%. Some people it's maybe even down to 85% of their 20 minute power relative to their one hour power. And that's something that's not normally discussed. And it's because I, I think that part of it is because a lot of time trialists are the ones who are a little obsessive about their FTP numbers. And so those are the, they're doing 40K time trials. Mm-hmm. So they're doing the hour efforts. They're doing the efforts that this test would be useful for the most. So for them to say 95%, that's very accurate for a time trialist. Uh, someone who's a little snappier rider, they're not going to be as focused on this metric in the first place. And so maybe their, um, their weight in the 
consensus or their weight in the discussion is not as high. So mm-hmm. um, we don't really think about them as much. That's I think that's totally fair. And I think, you know, it's it's probably good to do a couple things and see what happens. And look, the other piece of it is you can plot like, um, like a critical power curve and compare your your actual wattage against that and see like see if you come up short uh, for one hour. Right. Or you can plot a one hour effort against um, I think the other piece of it is 20 minutes. You can go hard in a race for an hour. You can probably go hard. Like you, the motivation's there, which I think is different than a testing environment sometimes. Yeah, but I think in a race, it's almost you're almost never given the opportunity to go that hard, unless it's a, a time trial or a breakaway, right? Yeah, or like a, a Mount Diablo hill climb. Yeah, and uh, if if you're in one of those situations, yeah, you you get to go full gas for yep. 50 minutes, but you might as well just done the test on that climb as well. If you, yeah, if you're close you enough that. to it, you have the access sure. to it. So. Uh, I don't know. I wonder the value of the FTP test other than to give you. So we did have an episode on the inside test, mm-hmm. um, which you can listen to that episode. I think that the biggest takeaway for me for the 20 minute power test was the value of just destroying yourself for 20 minutes and seeing what that feels like, mm-hmm. seeing an approximate wattage for that and just understanding how, you know, the feelings, the the mental, uh, what, you know, what your brain is saying to you, what your legs are saying to you, what your computer is saying to you, and just connecting all those dots together is almost just as valuable as the, the number and and your Watts per kilo that you get as a result. For sure. I mean, I think it's, it's nice to give yourself some baseline, right? I mean, if you're going to have a fancy power meter or whatever you have or a heart rate monitor or whatever, right? You need to have some baseline to understand, right? This is the idea of multiple data points and did this thing change over time? Because otherwise all the training is not useful. If you're not improving some, some metric, right? You want to have some metric of your performance improve. So you need to take that data point. And I think to your point, you know, if you're in a race, you're probably not. And I would argue you should not be looking down at your computer trying to, okay, well, I'm within, you know, three Watts of my projected FTP. So I think I'm good. Or like, oh, I should go harder or not go harder. You need to be able to feel it at that point so you can think about the race situation and, and respond to the race situation, not you know be doing arithmetic on, you know, oh, well, gee, I should go harder or not go harder. Like, yeah, it feels like I can go harder. I'm going to go harder right now. Like, this is the time. Sure. Yeah. And mm-hmm. in terms of use of your FTP in training, it can be good. We'll probably have talk about the uses of knowing your FTP in training, but for races specifically, uh, you know, say you're two hours into a race and it's been a hard race. What does your threshold number even mean? Because you could be doing 90% of your threshold and feel absolutely smoked because you've just busted your legs for two hours. You could be in a time trial and you took a little extra caffeine and you had your beetroot juice and suddenly you're looking down and you're doing threshold and your legs feel great. Maybe you should be bumping it up, but you're at your threshold already. Sometimes the number can be confounding, almost not useful. Yeah, the number can hold you back. And, and I yeah. think, you know, marathon runners talk about this like, okay, well, I'm going to go run, you know, whatever, 225 today. That's my goal. Like, well, once you say you're going to run 225 today, you basically determined you were going to, like, you're not going to run faster than 225 because you set your pace on the first mile. Like, okay, I'm, you know, whatever that is, I'm going to run that and I'm going to keep running that so I get 225. Whereas if you were to go by feel, Heck, if you feel good, you might end up with two twenty-three and a half, and that's great. 
Sure. I remember we had to run a six minute mile for soccer in high school and you know for sure I did five fifty nine, you know. Because why do why do anything less? Right. Why do I do anything yeah. Um, so uh are there other protocols other than FTP or did we did we hit everything? So we FTP hit front? we hit all the aerobic protocols or you know, aerobic if you will, sort of aerobic performance protocols. Okay. There's one there's one more test that I that I like um that doesn't really get talked about in cycling very much. And it it is fairly specific. You'd probably need a, a trainer or some other apparatus to do it, but it's called a Wingate test. And it's more of an anaerobic power test. It's actually a, a 30 second power test. Um, and it's a, it's a fixed resistance that's used. And it's a, it's based a, on your body weight. Yeah, it's correct? a certain force per kilogram body weight. Um, so, you know, if we wanted to get out our, our calculators and our physics books, we could back out based on your crank length and yada, 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 what the, you know, the wattage would be. And then so you're for a given cadence and all that. Yeah, well, I guess cadence doesn't matter for wattage. But. Yeah. Well, it does. Right. Because it's a. I, I guess I was thinking force production in yeah. the muscles would be dependent on cadence, right? On the like force in the downstroke, but um, not the wattage itself, right? Well, if you're moving the force faster, right? You're, you you would have lower force production if you had the muscle, cadence. correct? Yeah. So anyhow, um, so it's an interesting test. It's different. It's not something we typically talk about. But when you talk about sprinters, right? You mentioned, well, you know, look, sprinters may have a lower VO two max, may have lower threshold but they still win races. And this is the sort of thing, right? That they're taking advantage of to be able to win these races. I imagine if you tested a bunch of sprinters, their Wingate tests would literally be off the charts because they have that, that short-term anaerobic power. And is it normally standing seated? It's, you know, typically it's standing if I'm not mistaken. Okay. It um, sounds awful, but it sounds like if you want to get a good score, you should be doing it standard. Yeah. Standard you don't want maximal, time. maximal power. Yep. And it's interesting because they don't typically do it with, cyclists so they like there's no i looked at all the charts there's no cyclists on there but the the highest group which probably unsurprisingly was elite level rowers okay um, right i mean it, it's row, just like full body capacity to produce power. produce force yeah. for in an anaerobic type environment yeah uh so how can this be used for cyclists to get us this is just another way to get anaerobic data points exactly is this more of a creatine phosphate uh, specific test or is this your anaerobic capacity well, test 30 seconds so you're past your your creatine phosphate right so you're getting into anaerobic there we can look up i know there are a few charts that give the percent contribution of each engine uh, depending on the time of the effort so i think it would be significant contribution still from your uh, yeah you, you certainly your would get creatine, creatine phosphate. phosphate for sure but you're definitely getting into anaerobic a bit as well like you're the lower end of anaerobic at that point and if you learn how to do 30 minute, 30 second efforts and you could apply that to a race, oh my gosh, you would win like a lot of races because you could make up position in the last 15 seconds before the sprint starts. And then you can still have like a proper sprint and that would be a huge competitive advantage to have 30 second power. Yeah. I mean, or just like continuing that speed, right? Just even if you're, yeah, you don't you have the proper st- sprint, just like maintaining that velocity. Yeah. And, uh, and having I, a like having a running start. <laughs> yeah, I I did watch a video of um, one of the USA Cycling track sprinters was on a um, a watt bike and he did like a similar thirty second effort and by the end I think at the end they uh, he like fell over off the bike and like yeah these track sprinters can really smash those short efforts so 
I guess that's a, a protocol that it's difficult because it has a specific um, force metric. Force requirement, and, yep. Yeah, I think that is an issue with these anaerobic efforts and something like a one-minute effort is really popular. And if you have a testing protocol that involves... So here's the thing. Every coach has their own testing protocol and they all argue that it's the best. And uh, I mean, they're all very similar, but... Um, It'll usually be something like a 20-minute test, a five-minute mm-hmm. test, and then a one-minute test. And So the 20-minute test is an attempt at your FTP. They'll probably use the 95%. Uh, maybe they'll use a little bit of the five-minute test information to maybe drop it to yep, 93% mm-hmm. or something. Um, the five-minute test, they'll extrapolate a VO2 max from. And then the one-minute test, I've never done very well on one-minute tests. But the point of that is supposed to be your anaerobic system. Mm-hmm. And... I think the difficulty here is being able to actually uh, maximally apply the effort from, you know, an unfatigued start, because if you're not fatigued, you have to, you know, you either have to start standing or you have to start on a downhill and then you have to do a one minute effort as hard as you can. And say, you know, if you start from standing, you're not going to be able to do the effort as well because the torque, the initial torque is going to be too high at the mm-hmm. beginning. So you lose on the, you lose out on the first five seconds or so. Also, you'll have to mess with your gears because your gears will be too low at the beginning. So you're not really getting this maximal one minute effort. Also, if you want to start on a downhill into an uphill, then the bottom, your, your cadence is going to be way too high at the bottom. You're also not going to get enough effort out. And so it's really tough to take an anaerobic effort and try and put it on a bike, um, especially if you want to do it from rest. If you want to, I think the best simulation would be doing like a mock lead out, which is, you know, do threshold for a minute into a sprint. And, and if you were able to do that, um, you know, once a month and see how the changes compare. And maybe the sprint should be 30 seconds instead of 15 seconds. Something like that would be something that is a data point that would be useful and Mm -hmm. almost exactly replicates a race situation, Mm -hmm. which the value of the test is to help inform your fitness for racing. So it would be good for the test to replicate a race scenario. Yeah. And I mean, I can tell you like, I think the psychology around a one-minute effort is really hard. Pacing it's really hard because it's not something you typically do. I mean, unless you race the kilo, then you you know how to do a one-minute-ish effort. Well, we can talk about how the kilo riders pace it. Uh, what they do is they put really heavy wheels on, and they go as hard as they can at the beginning, and then they hope the, the inertia of the wheels carries them through the last uh, half lap when they're you know, basically cross-eyed and mm-hmm. just trying to stay upright. Yep. And they, they hope that the m- momentum carries them. So it, I think with kilo riders, it's basically full gas from the beginning. And um, I think that even the 500, which is the, um, the women's version mm-hmm. is, I mean, that's even faster, but they, the most successful 500 riders stay out of the saddle the longest. And usually you have to sit down because of a lack of coordination mm-hmm. as you fatigue. And so there's some sort of corollary effect between your core strength and your coordination in order to stay uh, out of the saddle and keep the power down. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, it's challenging. I mean, I know my riding racing one minute power is far higher than anything I've ever done trying to test it. Even though I like, I knew that I'm like, okay, I'm just going to like try to get close to this number as possible and just pin it never get close it's just one of those things like the adrenaline and everything yeah you can get a for those short efforts you can get a much higher value as a one-off 
yeah. than you than you ever can on a test. I wonder if you could um, like pit five riders together and say like, okay, like winner winner at the top gets a six pack or something, and just have them all you know really smash it all together and see and if that see can if get the, like, that the arousal and yeah. the, the motivation to really do a full gas effort you'd have to have like a, a constant grade start everyone would have to be in like a similar gear yep and you have to have like similar enough riders yeah that yeah because if someone gets dropped too hard they're you know, yeah they're done they'll stop i mean i guess the other thing is i don't know if you've seen the research around um, like time trial performance and then what you do is you give somebody an, an avatar of themselves and, and repeat the test and what you see is that if you sped up that avatar but you told the person that that was just their performance from the other day that they ride that two three percent faster yeah uh, i uh, i think it's sometimes called like a ghost or like yeah. ghosting so yep. when you do like for an F1 driver will do simulated racing because it's too expensive to ride the actual car. So they'll yep. do a simulation of their car. And if you put a ghost, which is like a semi-transparent version of themselves on the course as well, then they'll match the um, the transparent yep. car, even if you sped it up a little bit. And yep. humans also do that uh, with physiological testing. Yep. Yeah. So I mean, I think you wonder about doing some of that stuff for like a one minute test. Like, okay, well, I'm going to show you this avatar of you. I think this is what you can do. Or, or even just past. like a bar. You can have a bar that uh, is always a little bit further ahead than right. your bar, the actual bar that you're yep. doing. And, and then it, it can give the rider motivation to, of course, we've ruined our own chances of using yeah. this method because. But um, I, I think it's, I do think there's something interesting about the part where I'm taking your real performance, I'm speeding it up, but I'm not telling you that. And then you're able to mimic that, right? Even though it was better than you just did, you know, 24 hours ago. There's something really unique about that part of it, and that that psychology. They're like, oh, well, I I did that. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna do that again, even though it's actually exceeding what you did before. Sure, and I, I think that also lends to my experience with the full gas 20-minute um, test, where you exhaust your anaerobic stores at the beginning, is you really see how deep you can get, and you know, it's a dark place there, but you learn so much and the next time you do it, I'm sure you can go deeper because mm-hmm. you, you survived the last time yep. and maybe just this consistent testing, you know, say if you are a time trialist, you probably should be doing uh, a few more 20 minute power tests than something like a road racer who might be really focusing on that aerobic endurance mm-hmm. um, because just learning how to enter that pain cave and realizing you're going to be okay is going to contribute to your race performance as a whole. For sure. That, that positive psychology goes a long way. So, um, something that I want to share is, I guess I, I haven't had great experiences with testing protocols in that I'm not so sure I see the value in them. Um, one thing that's important to remember is you're never going to train at FTP. You're always going to train at a percent FTP. And Mm -hmm. so this number that you get defines your training for the next, Uh, month two Mm -hmm. months or some coaches or some uh, riders won't test for three months or four months Mm -hmm. at a time and so i'm something of a fast responder and i i change my ftp quickly and it comes and goes uh, very quickly so i could do three months of training and this 90 percent of this number is no longer meaningful it doesn't mean anything and i have traditionally pushed in you know say it's three weeks after i took my test i would push to the same rpe or the same feeling of 90 percent of my initial ftp 
after the three weeks to try and simulate the same feeling mm-hmm. of my body, but the power numbers will be up, you know, 5%. And it's this weird dynamic with uh, trying to understand, you know, am I using my anaerobic engine more because I'm 5% over this number that was calculated, but I was less fit when that number was calculated and trying to get all these things to work together almost is overwhelming. And there's not enough ways to get enough information to fully inform your training just based on this number and trying to use it for a long period of time. And so I've had more success feeling what it's like to be in your different engines and being in your different states of riding. And uh, we haven't done a, a episode on the different areas like base or I'm sorry, like zone two, zone three, mm-hmm. zone four, um, threshold. So I know what those feel like. I know what the bottom and the top and the middle of those feel mm-hmm. like, regardless of what my power meter says. And I prefer to use that. And I think that that's more indicative of my fitness than um, what the power test says. Because if I can do like one uh, one workout that I like is two by 30s at tempo, mm-hmm. and they're supposed to be done mid-tempo. And if I do four weeks of that straight, I will see it still feels like mid tempo, mm-hmm. but you just see this slow increase by two, three watts at a time mm-hmm. of that value. And that to me is a huge indication of improved fitness or improved capacity to withstand the load than um, this snapshot data type mm-hmm. of um, idea. And there are some uh, protocols or some companies or some training methods that use this continuous data acquisition style mm-hmm. of writing. And it's tough because you're never going to do a maximal 20 minute effort as part of your training. So something like, I I think golden cheetah does this continuous uh, data input to extrapolate to Mm -hmm. your um, important numbers as they say. So you would never do a proper, you know, 20 minute test or a proper one hour effort. So it's never really going to understand from that perspective, but it will understand that, look, your heart rate was the same and your power was higher. Mm -hmm. And, these kinds of comparisons will be just as informative in my opinion. And if your coach or, you know, whatever training plan you're working with is able to understand power in terms of that, then I think that's so much more valuable than just this snapshot of, you know, what is your watts per kilo today, man? Because it's, it's not actually what your watts per kilo is. It's what it was three weeks ago or uh, what it was when you, you know, you had a bad night's sleep the night before because you were stressed about the test or, uh, you know, there's there's just too much going on to say this one snapshot is is what yeah. I, want. I mean, I think that's the the power of more data for one. But I think to your point about feel, I I'm totally on board with that from a mountain biking standpoint. Is it mountain biking so variable? Right? Is seldom are you in a steady state when you're mountain biking, and certainly the last thing you should be doing if you're mountain biking is looking down at a power meter if you have one to determine like, oh yes, I'm near my threshold. Right? I mean, like the variability to index of mountain bike races, a cross country race typically is very high. Right? Much you know, it's higher than a crit even sometimes. So in that situation going be able, being able to go by feel and understanding you know of course some of your training needs to mimic your racing situation but understanding the feel understanding how hard you're going relative to what your limits are what you can sustain for the duration of the course and the pace and all all those things is so important and i think it's it's useful to have the data to help guide you initially right to have some foundation and say okay in theory my threshold is x and therefore my 
tempo pace would be y and my body feels like this right my my respiration sounds like this my legs feel like this uh getting getting all these things and like to your point like okay yeah i know the high and low in the tempo i know what that feels like from testing and from riding and having a little bit of guide but i think of those numbers as being a feedback mechanism for you to say yes let me correlate these numbers that represent you know roughly what's happening with my physiology to the sensations that I'm experiencing with my body so that when I get on the race course, I have a good idea of how I need to go about and pace myself. And of course, as we touched on earlier, your central governor is letting you know and giving you feedback, right? And altering what, you, what you're doing uh, independent of how you, you consciously feel about it Yep, and I, maybe giving you some conscious input, right? I, th- I think that it's important to note that you do need these initial data points. You do have to do that 20-minute test, and you have to feel how hard it is, and you have to see what the watts say. Mm-hmm. You have to do these initial values and then back-calculate your other values and then experience those values to understand for that snapshot what these feel like. As you spend more time riding and training, you start to feel these things regardless of what the power meter says. And... When you learn to not use the power meter and you use the feel, then you can also inform who, you know, if you're using a coach, you can inform them. And that can be a really exciting response to the coach is, uh, yeah, this was mid-tempo, but it was 10 watts over what mid-tempo is normally. That can be a good indication to the coach that you're feeling good and it can help inform their future workouts for you and help your progression. Or... Uh, you know, the opposite my Watts were low. This, this felt like mid tempo. Yeah, but you did low tempo. Well, you know, my, my body's responding a certain way. We need to react correctly mm-hmm. to it. So it is, you, you do need these data points at some point. They can also be really nice and motivating if you see them slowly creep up each mm-hmm. time that you do them, but they aren't the end all be all. And I think that a lot of top riders, a lot of um, elite riders who have been riding for a long time will lean on their power meters less. They'll let their coaches do that analysis. But for the most part, they are focusing on their body and how their body feels in the moment. Uh I mean, this is the reason Vincenzo Nibali said we should ban power meters uh, because he is very in tune with his body. And he, I mean, I don't think Chris Froome actually looks at his power meter that much. This was back when, you know, they were... Uh, arguing a bit i think that he just likes to look down when he rides but um this idea that um some riders don't know how to feel they just know how to look at the number um is i don't think that's true i don't think it's possible to be no, riding for I, eight, I don't think at that 10, that years. level you're just looking at the numbers and following you know following an algorithm of how you're supposed to ride yeah but i i think the the point is you know these very top riders really can feel the efforts and they really understand what's happening and um, that is something that you develop over time and you do need the these testing protocols to help inform it but a lot of these testing protocols especially the lab ones are ways to utilize science in order to make decisions about you know influences Mm -hmm. of um, you know food or um, supplements that the rider has taken. You know, these are ways to scientifically say these are the changes that we can mark in an Mm -hmm. athlete, Um, but they're not indicative of your race performance or your ability as a cyclist. Yeah. I mean, I think an overarching theme, right, of what we talk about all the time is how you're taking science. We're always talking about research, right? So take what all the people did in the lab 
take it with a grain of salt sometimes because the study designs are not always ideal and you know they they give you what they give you from a lab setting but take those things and sort of stand on the shoulders of giants and say okay what does the research say about this supplement or this training protocol or you know this particular approach and then use the uh, more crude science like an ftp test and also your feel and and put that together into your your training into your racing uh, so you you don't have to you know be in the lab poked and prodded right find the study that says oh yeah these people that were you know well-trained cyclists that's similar to me did this for this long and saw this improvement in vo2 max oh okay that's great i i would like to see that similar gain i should see if i can follow that protocol um, but i'll use my other tools rather than go into a lab and you know ride for six hours yep so uh that's power testing um I think that it's really interesting. It can be really fun. Uh, okay. Sarcastically fun. Not during, but, um, you know, well, I, I talked about this in the inside report. It was very interesting to get the mm-hmm. report, to get the feedback of the test. The test, yeah, definitely is not fun. But the feedback, the the changes, the growth is really fun. Um, but you have to be really cautious with it and make sure that you're coming to the right conclusions and you're using it in the right way in order to continue to grow as a cyclist. Yeah, and not, not over-pivoting on one one data point that you got from a test on one day. Yeah. So uh, if you liked our episode, um, please like, share, subscribe, review, uh, comment, um, retweet. Did I say retweet already? No, yeah, the tweet or okay. retweet, I suppose. Uh, just let your friends know, maybe in person. Do you do people talk to people in person? <laughs> Text, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what the, the thing um, is these days. We are trying to get more people to listen because uh, we like to share uh, our experiences with more people. So um, that'd be great if you could do that. Uh, Todd, do you have anything? Well, no, not nothing special other than my usual advice is to keep the riverside down. And we'll see you back at the next time.